there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. All right, as most of you know, the so-called humanitarian truce in Gaza is over and the destruction by Israel has resumed. The bombing is certainly most fierce now in the South, where many Palestinians, many Gazans were told to go. Uh, What we're also hearing is in the center of Gaza is surrounded by ground troops, tanks, kind of encircling the folks who are in between the north and the south. And again, it's another siege on a hospital there. By most accounts, though, Israeli troops are performing very poorly against Palestinian resistance fighters. So I think the reason I mention that, one, is to give credit to Palestinian resistance fighters, what they're going through and what kind of resources they have, I can only imagine. But uh, also because I think it's evidence that Israel doesn't particularly fight any kind of traditional warfare. And I guess in today's modern age, that's probably the case with most states. But the tactics that Israel is employing as of late certainly must be what is helping shift the media narrative that we're going to talk about in the second half of this episode, because they are horrific They are not unique to the state of Israel. We'll give you a few examples there, but they are obviously nothing short of genocide. But, you know, the flooding of the tunnels is what comes to mind today. We're hearing the Israeli army, the IDF, is dropping leaflets warning that they are going to flood the tunnel system that everyone speaks of underneath Gaza and they're going to use the sea to do it. Very ironic, you know, considering from the river to the sea has such genocidal meaning to the Israeli state, apparently, but yet they'll use the sea to actually commit genocide. Because this isn't just like flooding terrorist tunnels. This is going to have severe implications to the infrastructure above it, right? Like, you know, imagine if there was someone dug a tunnel system that managed to be viable underneath an urban setting that certainly flooding it with seawater, like large volumes of seawater is going to make the buildings above it unstable. It's going to poison the groundwater supply. It's going to contaminate the agriculture land, the agricultural land that's used. So, I mean, to brazenly just announce that you're going to use these tactics ahead of time, certainly just receipts, hopefully, for a war crimes tribunal at some point. Yeah, I mean, and it was really concerning the wording on the leaflets that they were dropping. Like, we're talking some real, like, theocratic, fascist, genocidal shit. Um, it was, they. It, it, there was a quote from the Quran that said, um, the flood overtook them while they were wrongdoers. 
which I think says a lot about the intention here, right? You know, they, they'll say publicly that this is part of their fight against against Hamas, but... Against evil. Against evil. I think it's but, so fucked up we're using this ethno-state shit that they can just use this biblical crap. Or, you know, I know they quoted the Quran, but it's all this religious shit that they're using to justify this in geopolitics. Like, since when has this kind of justification or language been acceptable at all? I I have trouble wondering how we give an exception here. Like, when we look at Iran, the biggest beef everyone has with Iran is the fact that it's an Islamic state, that that's just crazy to base an entire political system where you've centered one religion and given preference to one religion and and whatnot, and you enforce it politically, like the way that we've so-called separated church and state, not really, but you know, and, but Israel like comes up with this stuff and uses that kind of justification and it really doesn't get the pushback that it deserves. Yeah. And, um, I mean, this is, we're already talking about Gaza, which already struggles to get water. This is now wiping out all the clean drinking water that they have subterraneally. And they're also continuing to to displace people, to target new areas. You know, this is I mean, I, I it's so like blatantly obvious to anybody who has any sort of historical knowledge what is happening here and like we've been shouting it from the rooftops for weeks now but it's just like i like at what point like do the do the the does the west stop being able to deny what's going on here like how long can they keep saying the same thing using the same excuse to justify genocide you know it's like I, I'm, I'm so frustrated i'm so tired like this is exhausting and i can't imagine how exhausting it is for those in gaza uh, for those with family in Gaza, like I'm, I'm, I'm fucking tired of of this. I'm tired of talking about this. I'm tired of this being an issue, and it's not changing. Like, has the narrative gotten better? Yeah, but like, fuck, I'm tired. This is like not even new to Israel, right? So the fact that I, I get what you're saying, and I'm also like really pissed off with Canadian politicians who are now coming around and saying, well. You've gone a little bit too far. You know, you can't you still can't get Justin Trudeau to call for a ceasefire. But Jolie is saying, you know, have to work on trying to limit civilian casualties. But right from the get go, even before October 7th, the fact that they would stand up and reaffirm Israel's right to defend themselves, like never has an occupying force gotten been successful in trying to frame themselves as a victim. I, I don't know how that can happen here, but it does. But they're aware that Israel operates this way regularly. They have been merciless since the Nakba. There has not been really a moment in their history where they have been tolerant and restrained and following international law. It's, you know, I'm reading about, help me out here, Santiago. What's the name of the doctrine? It's named after an area in Beirut. So I'm putting the uh, pressure on you. The Dahia doctrine? I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. Okay, so this is 
comes from an area, like I said, in in Lebanon, where Hezbollah had headquarters and fighters and two Israeli soldiers had been taken, captured. And the response that the Israeli government, the Israeli army used was disproportionate. That is the term that they use to describe this doctrine. It is a disproportionate response that doesn't just serve to, you know, eliminate a military threat. It does, it, it's a deterrent. It's to cause such large infrastructural damage, psychological damage, that it would take generations to rebuild and get back to any kind of strength as a people's. So this is a tactic that Israel has been using, not just in Gaza and the West Bank, but on all of its borders in response to any kind of threat that it perceives. And so our Canadian politicians have consistently greenlit this for so long. And, you know, I think now they're starting to taste a little sour taste in their mouth. I mean, it doesn't hurt that they are constantly accosted everywhere they go with calls for, you know, being charged with genocide. Like that's got a weigh on you after a while. I mean, I don't give a fuck if they're they're not sleeping at night, but it, it's getting hard. Like if you look at what they're calling the war on children, and I know that's like sounds like hyperbole, but how do you deny that at this point it's not a war on children? Right? Like we see them bombing refugee camps, hospitals, like the way that those newborns were left behind by the Israeli army. Like, you need to understand the hatred that must you must be raised in in order to follow orders like that. Right? I don't think people understand that it's really not just the Israeli state. The Israeli soldiers, the, the behavior that we are seeing in videos, and I know war does fucked up things to people, but it's so dehumanizing the way that they see Palestinians, like the way that they're going through their belongings afterwards and the way that they're like making tributes to their children or their loved ones back at home by by standing on the ruins of residential buildings. Like the fucking mentality you have to have to commit the acts that we're seeing, like bombing uh, medicine Medicine Sans Frontier, Doctors Without Borders vehicles, or the fact that we're like at 7,000 plus children dead. They've taught them that Palestinians are not human beings. You know, I want to read a quote by Golda Meir, and we've heard this. You are going to hear, like, this is an echo that has reverberated because you are seeing it online. It's used as justification. And, you know, she's talking Golda Meir was the prime minister, the fourth prime minister of Israel. She was in power when the Yom Kippur War started. And if you listen to our interview with Danny Morrison, he talks about how he was influenced by this. But in that case, Israel found itself caught off guard. Sound familiar? And she paid the price politically. But here's one of the statements, one of her famous quotes. It's just like horrific to hear. We can forgive the Arabs for killing our children. We cannot forgive them for forcing us to kill their children. We will only have peace with the Arabs when they love their children more than they hate us. And so they're framed as these demons and then that allows, like, soldiers, you know, walk away from fucking babies in incubators simply because they're Palestinian children. And, and what this is is, 
when we look at this, this isn't the case of, oh, they just have the wrong people in um, positions of power. Um, what this is, is the only possible outcome for the Zionist project. And the re my reasoning behind that is, if you are trying to create an ethnostate in this land where there is a Jewish majority or where without a, or without a Jewish majority where the other people being the other being Palestinians in this case are denied equal rights, your only option inevitably becomes genocide in order to maintain that dynamic. It is the only possible outcome. Because Palestinians still to this day are, I don't know if it's equal or they outnumber them, but it's pretty much a majority from what I understand. Census data is difficult to come by. Um, they ha how do you get people to do this? How do you get people to carry out such atrocious things? Fear is a very big part of it, Right. They, there is so much propaganda around fear, and it's based on the history of op oppression of Jewish people around the world. And it's a very real history, and it's a very real issue to this day. But what, is, what the Zionists are doing is taking that fear and using it to justify the oppression of another people's, and that's inevitable. It's the only way for them to maintain power and to maintain the concept of Israel. That's why from the beginning I've been saying that the, the, there is no there is no two-state solution, there is no one state called Israel or like you know the, the only solution is democratic secular rights for all. And I I I just I needed to mention that because you know like we you know too 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 often we we either don't ask ourselves or don't really think about, like, how is it possible for people to do these things, right? And, and I also don't want people drawing the conclusion that this is just the hatred and evil of a, of a people's because that's not what this is. What it is is the inevitability of trying to create ethnostates. And we've seen this happen around the world. And it's not because people are evil. It's because of ideology. It's because of a, 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 a corrupted ideology. And that ideology in this case is Zionism which is theocratic fascism. Absolutely. And one of the things that Zionism requires and really any oppressive force requires is extremist scapegoats, or at least people being framed as extremists. And so, as we know, Netanyahu fed into the creation <clears throat> of Hamas. It was part of a strategy. And for all that, you know, we want to think about Hamas and their part in the resistance they are a necessity in order to help justify the conditions under which Israelis live, like having bomb shelters being mandatory in every home. Now, knowing what we know of the rockets and the actual amount of Israeli casualties and, in the end, the effectiveness of those safe rooms, you can only imagine that part of the role that they play is to be that constant presence of fear within the home that constant reminder that they're under threat. And I'm seeing a lot of Israeli youth pop up on TikTok, you know, uh, in conversations. And they're adamant in, you know, they 
Israel is not partaking in an occupation, that they are the victims. And, you know, you look at them, they don't feel like they're lying. Uh, one can't know if, you know, they're hired hands or, or whatnot, because the, the whole bot, Zionist bot thing is a little bit out of control. But, you know, um, one of the stories that I shared on Twitter, and I'll link it to the show notes, it was a TikTok video. It was like three to five minutes, so I can't really share the whole clip here. But it's uh, it's an activist named Shlomo Yitzchak. And like I said, you can find him on TikTok. But he tells the story of how he left Zionism. And I'm just going to paraphrase it. You know, he was in a nationalist Zionist institution, almost like a school, and in the way that he described it. And one of the programs allowed conversations with a Palestinian as part of the learning process. And he went to meet a Palestinian man who had come from Ramallah and told a story of how he had to leave at four in the morning in order to arrive at that interview for nine. And he knows that that's just seven miles away. So it piqued his interest. He needed to know why did it take you so long to get here? And the man tells the story of the checkpoints and the conditions in which exist for him to move seven miles in the land that was once his family's. And so, you know, being a free thinker, he wanted to know more, right? There was, he was torn. He could feel what he'd been taught and what he was seeing right now were not jiving with one another. Anyway, the gentleman offers to take him to Ramallah to show him. And Shlomo admits to the audience that his first thought was that this man will kill him. Even though he'd already sit in conversation with this man, this man had traveled five hours just to have a conversation with a Zionist youth to help prove he was human and his people were human and deserved better, that he still, his first thought, because of all that he'd been taught his whole life, was that this man would kill him. Uh, but something, you know, pushed him inside and he went. Um, even though thinking, like, he would come back in a body bag is how he described it. Like, to think that a kid like him, a Zionist kid, could go into Ramallah and come back alive is, like, unheard of. And what he saw on the other side of the checkpoints was transformative for him. He was then removed from that isolated, because both of these societies are very isolated from one another, right? So he is for the first time witnessing the in, the other side of this wall, and he sees graffiti, and it's of a Palestinian youth with a slingshot and a rock. And he goes, oh my, you know, these people are like my people. Here they have graffiti of David and Goliath, and as the bus continues to move, he sees that the, the slingshot's actually pointed at an idea of soldier in the image. And it hits him. Who is David? Who is Goliath in this story? And one of the other powerful moments from that story that I just want to share because it really, I don't know, it really kind of shook me. And I'll try to explain it as best I can. Um, so thinking he would first fear for his own life because he was a Zionist Jew, on the other side of the wall, once he was surrounded by Palestinians on a Palestinian bus, he realized that he didn't fear from Palestinians. He then realized he was on a Palestinian bus. He had taken his kippah off, his yarmulke, and put on a ball cap. So he probably resembled Palestinians. And he knew he was then at the mercy of an apartheid regime. 
He knew that he was at their whim, that, you know, save for his U.S. passport, he would be able to pull out, that he would then be treated like a Palestinian. And that's what made him fearful in that moment. He, he never looked across the bus and thought any of them would harm him. But he, he and that transformed him completely. And so I think that's with so many things that we fear, that we've been told to fear, that once you witness it and once you live it and see it and breathe it, like you can change how people think. Right. I know like an old example of that is a lot of people, you know, homophobics. Right. A lot of people are transformed when when a close person comes out and then you realize that you have lived and experienced a gay person without any negative effects. Like all the things that you feared never came to fruition. And in fact, it was the opposite, you know, so. I don't know. I drew hope from that story as well, but also got really mad at the fact that like how many people live on the other side of that wall that see any Palestinian person as a threat to their safety. And a lot, because even Canadian Jews who have grown up with Zionist ideology being pushed on them, you know, are looking at what is happening with like legitimate fears, but they're not legitimate in the sense that the pro-Palestinian movement wants to harm them. They're legitimate in the sense that they were raised with people telling them that threats to Israel are a threat to them existentially or even in reality. And that has just really warped people's view. I mean, any, any scholar looking at this can see these patterns played out through history the way that this is used to to justify genocide and um i have another story that i want to share this one um came from a a professor at humber who was speaking at a palestinian rally at um at, at my campus something that uh, well, by the way, just side note, they, they had mentioned how in all of their time teaching, they had never seen anything like this on campus. And I thought that that was a very, both a sad statement, but also a testament to the importance of this moment uh, and to the universality of this, this struggle. Um, but anyways. It may be an amazing newspaper. <laughs> they They mentioned, you know, how in... As as they're getting older, they've taken up. I, and I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase here and do my best job at paraphrasing um, their story. They mentioned that they've taken up a lot of um, new hobbies. One of them being bird watching, and they brought out a picture of this bird. That's uh, the Palestinian sunbird, and the story behind this bird, which is the which was in 2015 reckon, declared the national bird of Palestine, is that for a long time, Israel lobbied to change the name in an effort to erase Palestinian identity. Because for them, how could there be a bird named after a place that doesn't exist? How could there be a bird? Like, if, if they're trying to erase Palestine, they can't have... Something as simple as a bird threaten that idea. And he taught, so the professor, he spoke about how this was a, 
this is an aspect of genocide. You know, genocide comes in many different forms. And cultural erasure, the erasure of identity is, is a big part of it. And I think that for me, there was something really powerful about this one because I hadn't heard anybody else say something like, like this. This was very different. And and because, you know, maybe it's because of what birds represent, you know, the the freedom of a bird. Birds don't see borders or or understand our structures, you know. It's just a bird. And that bird was enough to represent the threat. Right. And I think that that speaks volumes. I think that speaks volumes as to how this is a genocide and the the ideological backings behind it. It reminds me of the olive trees, too, right? There's no military or economic real, well, it is part of their livelihood, but the burning of the olive trees and there's... There's just so many endless examples. And from the river to the sea is another one, I believe, where they just won't let them have anything. Nothing. Not even a national bird. Or can't fly their flag. You know, like such obvious attempts at erasure in what seems like the smallest sense. But when you realize how many examples of the sunbird kind of analogy that there is, it seems incredibly cruel, right? And really reminiscent of what colonial forces did here to indigenous peoples in terms of banning their cultural practices and potlucks and dances and, and ceremonies on top of all of the other things that the horrific things that you can point to that are like violent. Um, but then it's these cultural things that obviously don't often get discussed because they're maybe don't take precedent, but they have deep impact, right? Like on the psyche and. One one thing, um, you know, one thing in the discourse that people, whenever genocide comes up, people like to mention, you know, Nazi Germany. I think that it does a disservice almost to what's happening here to, to compare to Nazi Germany, because I think the much more, real historical comparison to make is the Canada. I think that there's a lot more similarities with what's happening here to Canadian genocide of indigenous people than there is to uh, the genocide by Nazis. And I say that as a condemnation to the settler colonialism of Canada and, and so that we can take responsibility to for that ideology's spread around the world and it was an ideology that informed um the nazis as well you know the the idea behind the final solution came from canada it came from the final solution for indigenous peoples in canada that was the ideological origin so there is a lot of historical responsibility that that comes back to our treatment here that we have to take because yeah, no, it, that erasure of a culture is something that continues to this day and that it, it we're still carrying out and it, we carry out when we fail to condemn it around the world as well. So, 
In the Canadian context, we're seeing a lot of reports of people being asked to not wear kafiyas. I saw even an Islamic school in Ontario eventually walk this back, but had an initial policy that students were not to wear a kafiyah to school. Now, this could obviously be response to the fact that you know, three young people in the United States were shot because they were wearing a kafiyah and speaking Arabic. And there's been countless other examples of people being accosted. And the kafiyah is certainly a sure-tell sign that you are pro-Palestinian. But I think generally you can say in the Canadian media and beyond, even the Israeli media, there is a shift happening. And we've talked about it before and we've sounded hopeful and there's been many times to kind of discount that. So one of the examples, uh, CTV, I think we brought it up on the show before, but uh, a memo went around to their staff, really explicit, you know, don't say the word Palestine, don't take a position that isn't very clear to what we've done. I think we saw something similar go around CBC. You were even saying... Um, you want to chime in there with the, they fired someone? That was CTV. That was CTV who fired uh, the only Palestinian journalist that they had. That was, uh, it was about a week ago, I think. Um, they, they, it's it's part of a larger, um, I guess, to varying extents, it's something that we're seeing. There's no one who's innocent from this in, in the largest media networks in Canada. You know, Bell Media has been uh, very vocal about, you know, what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say. And, you know, even um, and this is a testament again to how different we're doing things at Humber versus everywhere else. But we had a, a, a journalist come in who is a Canadian journalist, but who works for Al Jazeera. And they were, they gave a presentation to all of the journalism students essentially about Canadian media's failures when it comes to covering Palestine. And one of the things that was very shocking to me was, you know, the word apartheid has had not at that point in time been mentioned by any of the major media networks, not once. <laughs> Maybe in not even in quotations, like someone no. accused Israel of being an, a quote unquote apartheid state. Like, no, no, it, and 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 that like that's the thing is that it's it's so blatant, like the erasure of Palestinian voices in in Canadian media, the erasure of what this struggle is, the language that is being used, it's it's huge. And uh, I'll take this moment then to to highlight there is a I open letter um, that as of right now has been signed by. 150 journalists in Canada condemning uh, both Israel's continued killing of journalists in Gaza, one, but also um, Canadian media's failures to cover this issue um, properly. And one thing that you'll, because people are allowed to sign it anonymously, and it's interesting how there's, you know, you'll see anonymous CBC anonymous the globe and mail anonymous toronto star you know another anonymous cbc did you sign it i signed it uh, it hasn't been updated to, to include me yet but I, I did sign it um but you know a lot of journalists have their names there a lot of journalists for um 
newer, more progressive, independent media, they get to have their name there. All of the anonymous, all of it is linked to, to major publications, which I think says a lot. Is there an anonymous for the CTV there? Or is Omar Sachedina on there? Because I wanted to talk about his report that I know uh, a lot of Zionist organizations are trying to leverage, but I thought it was so on point, but very surprising considering what you've just told us and what we know about CTV in particular. Is he on the list? Scanning, I, I, I can't tell. Uh, sorry, full name again? Omar Sachedina. No. So while you look, I'll, you know, this week there was a, I don't know how to frame it, a pro-Israel, I'm sure someone will want to correct me on that, rally at Parliament Hill. So in describing the rally that happened on Parliament Hill, he called it, he he referred to it as being in support of the war. Then he goes on to say, while inside, Palestinian Canadians made a plea for help. The report then goes on. He's talking about a press conference being held by NDP MP Matthew Green, who is allowing uh, Canadian Palestinians to come to the mic and tell firsthand accounts. And so it's completely accurate. They were making pleas for help uh, for the Canadian government to, one, again, call for a ceasefire, but also to allow expedition of visas or refugee claims for family members to get out of Gaza uh, if they so choose. But, you know, it's funny that the he's People are trying to frame it. It's just so weak. The Zionist lines have become so weak and transparent that that's in part while I say that the narrative is shifting, not necessarily by the willingness of any kind of media, but the inability to defend what we're seeing and some of the lines that they're coming up with. Like, I don't know how you could have framed that rally on Parliament Hill as anything other than being for the war. I mean, Israeli flags were flying. People were reaffirming Israel's right to defend themselves. The in, in, in another related rally, I think it was in B.C., folks were doing rape theater where they were reenacting the reported rapes, wartime rapes, and as a means to drum up support for the aggressive for Israeli aggression. So Jeremy Appel posted up, uh, if you've lost Jake Tapper, you know, you've lost the whole narrative because that joker on CNN, he's got an Israeli spokesperson there in front of him trying to assure them that they're doing everything they can to avoid civilian casualties. And Tapper's like, really? Because I got a producer who's just lost nine members of their family and we've seen everything to the contrary. So you know, when you're starting to get challenged by BBC and CNN, it's safe to say that uh, you don't really have everybody won over at this point. So, um, yeah, no, I, I think that journalists are definitely coming to the other side of this because, I mean, like at the end of the day, we know that it, it's not backroom deals. It's not like. Not typically. I mean, I guess in the case of Bell Media, it is a little backroom where they are sending out messages saying, hey, you're not allowed to talk about this. Typically, it's not usually that blatant. But yeah, journalists are very bad at being told what to do, um, typically speaking. And I guess there's only a limited number of journalists that you can kill before eventually they're going to be like, oh, 
that would be me if I was trying to cover this, you know, like at some point. And and the number is something ridiculous. Last I checked, it was something along the lines of 72 journalists have been killed um, since uh, all this began. Well, kicked back up at least. That's a... Is there a precedent to that? I don't think there is a precedent to that. I can't think of a time, especially not in modern history, when that many journalists have been killed in such a short period of time. I mean... You know, Humber Convergence magazine every year does a uh, like one of the sections they do is, you know, enemies of the press where they talk about which countries in the world are killing journalists at the highest rate. That'll be an interesting episode this year. Oh, well, from what I know is that this year, yeah, Israel, it's absolutely on the list. But I I was just digging through the archives the other day helping... uh, Sort of thing too, you know. It couldn't come across like it couldn't come across anything nearly as drastic as what we're seeing here. So I, I'm I'm not sure that there. Anyway, yeah, I'm not sure that there is a precedent here, and absolutely, it, it's going to have an impact. And and I think we're seeing that change happen more in the mainstream. But at the same time, the censorship is still very real. One thing, you know, I mentioned that open letter um, in the U.S. They had a similar open letter that led to. 38 journalists being um, fired or was it fired or disciplined? They're at least suspended. I believe they were suspended. 38 journalists from the Los Angeles Times. Um, That's a massive amount of journalists who were simply calling um, for the death of journalists to end. It's all these really simple asks. I get so frustrated that we get so excited when you know, a politician's like calls for a ceasefire or some form of restraint. Like I am so fucking past that at this point, but I understand those are the steps we have to get to, to get there. But I want to focus on the Palestinian media. It's an emotional roller coaster following those folks. I'm going to link you to a few that, that I follow on different platforms, but I guess the most prolific would be Motaz. Bassan, Bassan comes to mind, and then there is still an Al Jazeera crew that is operating there. The amount of reporters that are left are so minimal, though. And if it wasn't for them continuing to risk their lives, we wouldn't know a lot of what we know. And if you follow them, it becomes apparent, especially in the case of Motaz, that he is being targeted that he receives messages to his phone that tell of his location, that tell him to evacuate, that are claiming to be from the IDF. There's footage of him being fired upon, wearing the blue vest with press written across it and press on the helmet. At this point, I imagine everyone in the IDF knows who he is. And that is a tactic. That is definitely a tactic that they've employed throughout this is to target these folks. And so to stay behind for a moment, I want to just for you to imagine that you find yourself a journalism student that does create content creation. Cause like, if you look at Bisan, 
She didn't do traditional reporting before this. She was a content creator, but told of Palestinian culture and of places. And it was almost like a virtual tour guide of Gaza and found herself in this very new position of having to bear witness and make sure the world sees what's happening. So like that could easily be you. How do you decide like to stay or to go, how close you get, what your obligations are, the emotional turmoil these folks must be going through daily? I I, I really can't imagine that level of suffering. I, I can only imagine that what keeps them going, well, not, not what, not what keeps them going as in gives them hope, but what keeps them going, what keeps them fighting this hard is bearing witness to everything that's happening around them and knowing that unless this information is coming from journalists, unless this information is coming from people who know how to, how to distribute, how to capture footage, how to bear witness without it being like a shaky vertical cell phone, that it'll be that much easier to erase the realities of what's really happening. Because the Israeli propaganda has been, I mean, we've seen it. We've seen their efforts to to rewrite everything. And so being there, showing the world. I mean, one thing that really impacted me is um, there was, you know, uh, Motaz uh, mentioned a f- couple days ago. Uh, I think he's still doing the work, but he, he said um, the phrase, the phase of risking everything to bring you the news has ended. Now begins the phase of trying to survive. I have brought you enough news and I swear to God it was for his sake and for service to my country. We are now facing an internal siege. We can't move north or south. Israeli tanks surround central Gaza on both the northern and southern ends. Our situation is more dire than you can imagine. Remember, we are not content for you to share. We are a people facing genocide. We are a cause attempting to stay alive alone. And that was very impactful because I can't imagine. There, I would imagine that if I was in a situation like this, my idea would be if I can only show people what's really happening, something will change. If I can only show the world what is going on, if there is justice, then this must end. That's what I that's what I think I would think, at least. That's what I imagine I would think. I think you'd have to tell yourself that in order to keep going, right? Because if you thought it was futile, if you thought even the images of your neighborhood being demolished and, you know, folks coming out of the rubble the way that they do, you, you'd have to think that there is going to be a point to this, that... That it's not just clickbait that people are sharing, that it's going to spur people into action. I, I and I think I think that living with the constant fear of bombs falling from the sky, I think that would drive me insane. I'm sure I, it because has. Because you can imagine the very human, the very animal instinct of fight or flight right when we feel we are endangered right we 
there's okay, well, you can't fight anything because there's nothing in front of you to fight. But you can't run because there's nowhere you can run that will be safe. I don't know what that feels like, but I, I imagine it feels like insanity. I imagine that that's petrifying. And we already know that most of the children in Gaza already had PTSD going into this because of the scenes of war. But one video, as you're saying that, like one video comes to mind and it's of a father trying to entertain his child. Looks like there is a cake or something on the table he's trying to occupy him with. And the father hears planes. He anticipates his child is going to react in fear, right? And so he, as soon as he hears the planes, you see him go, and it's okay, it's okay. And sure enough, no, the young boy, maybe eight or nine, is just shaking and screaming and running to the couch, but in a really kind of aimless way. Like you say, like he doesn't know where to go, and he realizes it doesn't matter, you know, but his body needs to run and scream. And this, I can only imagine this has repeated itself every time the child has heard a jet over by. And even just watching videos this week of a residential compound. So they're like, looks like eight story apartment buildings, about eight of them in a row. And the video's less than three minutes and you see about six of them just be completely demolished. And in between each one is the whoosh of the jet before the ammunition is dropped, the bomb is dropped. And, you know, when you see the numbers of munitions that have been dropped on Gaza, these children, these people have heard that noise again and again and again and again. And then like, don't make me start talking about the fucking air show again, right? Like now, now can people realize what that sound must do to folks who have lived through anything like this? Because even now, you hear planes. I, I I don't know if you do it too, but like it's, I've seen so many videos that I start to associate it. I don't feel fear, but I do associate that sound with horror. Mm -hmm. I remember there was a plane for an Argos game that flew over Parkdale um, sometime after um, all of this, like the, the recent history. And, um, I remember that the neighborhood was very angry uh, at the unnecessary, like how unnecessary it was. You know, we already have the air show, but here during active war, they were flying military planes over Parkdale. And I remember I saw it, I was like, what, what could that possibly be for? I couldn't understand it. Um. Now, uh, another thing to the fear is it's not just the fear for yourself, it's the fear for your family. Um, recently, an Al Jazeera journalist, Momin Al-Shrafi, uh, lost 22 members of his family. Um, his mother, father, and three of his siblings were killed at Jabalia refugee camp when it was bombed. You see journalists on air constantly discovering that they have lost members of their family that they've lost someone. So it's not just a fear for yourself. It's a fear for your family. And they keep reporting. I don't, I don't know how they do it. I, I really, I really don't know how they do it. 
to witness because it's you know most people you run away from the worst of it but journalists are here digging through the rubble trying to show people what happened so you're in an attempt to show the world what is going on you're also having to witness that much more horror and it's not like any other wartime reporting we've seen right like they're in their own communities they're running to scenes like you say where they might find family members they're not removed observers in any sense and no i can't i can't imagine i think people really need to try to put themselves in the shoes of particularly Palestinian Canadians right now and what that must be like to be witnessing this real time, you know, waiting for phone calls, trying to reach people, feeling utterly helpless, hopeless, trying to do whatever you can, and then coming into a season where celebrations are happening. Uh, You know, if you're over in Canada, we're pretty much talking about Christmas. And, you know, I've seen a few tree lighting ceremonies be disrupted and it to get backlash. And I think that folks are getting really insensitive into exactly what Palestinian Canadians are experiencing right now. Like, it's not right. It's not right that they should be expected to temper down, quiet down, take a break for the holidays. Uh, That's completely unacceptable. And there was an interview there that particularly drove this point home. Folks need to remember that there are Christians also living in Gaza uh, and in the region. Jews, Christians, and Muslims have coexisted along other side religions for quite some time before all of this. But to my previous point, there is a church in Ontario here where they aren't celebrating Christmas in the traditional way. I believe it's a a Palestinian Christian church predominantly. And the pastor there, the head of the congregation, explains that if Jesus were alive right now, he likely would be buried under rubble. And to try to celebrate a holiday centered around this very story that occurs in Bethlehem, which is in Palestine, and to not make that recognition or that connection uh, was a little bit hypocritical. And so I'm not telling folks to not celebrate their holidays because we need to find joy still in our lives, right? That's not what I'm saying, but you are going to see maybe Santa Claus parades, Macy's Day parades disrupted business is not going to be as usual, right? And that is because there's no time to spare. So like ease up on the backlash, especially if you feel like it's kind of attacking one of the, your core traditional events. Like I know how people can kind of be reactionary to that. We saw that when Black Lives Matter disrupted the Pride Parade, right? That caused like a real kind of uproar as though they weren't justified in doing that at that moment that they had to pick and choose the time and place to which they would defend themselves. And, you, you know, know what that makes me think of 
What? It's how Israel disrupts every single secret holiday. Uh, For predominantly Muslims, like the Muslim holidays. Yeah. 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 How many times have we seen them um, in in East Jerusalem, you know, at the, I forget what, is it the Alaska? The mosque. The mosque? mosque. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Um, Go and uh, brutalize people who are just there to, uh, as part of their... um, traditional celebrations right that happens yearly that doesn't just happen now that happens yearly right and so maybe we can find some 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 sympathy in the sense that we understand that maybe we can be a little bit uncomfortable because we've been supporting that same Uncomfort inflicted upon others, not uncomfort that that will in that case it was brutality. I don't, you know, I don't have a lot of. Yeah, I really just don't have a lot of sympathy in this situation for people who. Who. Cannot see that, I'm not gonna celebrate while a genocide is happening, and I'm not gonna. Ignore that a genocide is happening, and that's what it is, you know. Uh, everyone always asks themselves, what would you do in this situation? What would you do in that situation? Prove it. You know, it's the very, like, it's it's in the little things, too. We can't even do the little things. And, I, I, you know, I, I, um, I often quote the quote from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the if you're neutral in situations of injustice, you're chosen the side of the oppressor. And I, I, I actually recently got a little bit of backlash from for that because... You know, um, people were essentially saying it's it's unfair that, you know, why should I have to do something about this? And I was a little bit in, I was a little bit annoyed at that because, like, do are we under the like? I understand people like I, I we talk about all the time here the various ways that people can get involved the various like obstacles to that the various challenges like you know we're very like we get it you know we get the burnout we get how stressed people are but there's a lot of people out there who really could be doing more and 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 you know like are we under the impression that this isn't a greater theme that's impacting here are we blind to the rise of theocratic fascism in canada yes do we not see how that is a thing do we not see our obligation to combat that are we really going to wait until it is so blatantly obvious to do something about it. And, and and we need a little bit more support because you know what? Like I, I, I can feel a certain amount, like I feel guilt, but I also feel proud of, of what I, uh, doing what I can, you know, doing what I can here. And I, I just, I need more people to be doing that too. You know, I'm really pissed off too with the people that seemingly, are trying to hide behind being apolitical or perhaps being out of the jurisdiction. I'm thinking of some NDP part, Ontario NDP partisans, especially that try to tell Sarah Jamma, MPP Jamma, to stay in her lane to focus on domestic issues, issues that impact Ontarians. And I thought, like, how could you have possibly looked back and put yourself in another situation? like the Holocaust or what was happening 
with Nazis and Nazism in, in Europe. And could you still take that position then? Like, wouldn't that seem absurd to you then? Or a bunch of the teachers unions. So the OFL came out on October 22nd and they issued a statement calling for a ceasefire. Uh, it's a little bit more articulate than that. I'll link people to their statement. And But the federations, the teachers' unions that are part of that federation have not yet adopted that line. And they are hiding behind the fact that they just don't comment on international matters. Yet Javier Davia tells us, you know, he goes obviously digging through their social media that... ETFO, the elementary teachers, they've tweeted about Ukraine 12 times. OECTA's tweeted about U Ukraine five times. And OSSTF, the Ontario high school teachers, three times. So, like, we've talked about the hypocrisies that exist between our support for the Ukrainian resistance to Russian aggression to Palestinian resistance. But it, the Scotiabank Arena is another example. They have lit up in the Ukrainian colors many, many, many times. But Gada, a Palestinian activist, tries to show up to a Mariah Carey concert wearing her keffiyeh and she's forced to remove it. They say that's not political. We don't do political things within this arena. And it's it's part of that manufactured consent and that normalization that when we are told from the top down that there's good guys and bad guys, it removes the politicalness. I, I don't think that's an actual term, especially for someone that's first in political science to use. But, <laughs> you know, it. It, it becomes non-political. It's just absorbed into part of our culture and regurgitated without question and not seen as inherently political. But there is nobody that's going to tell you that saying you're pro-Palestinian at this point isn't the most political thing that you can say. And it's such a warped hypocrisy for people to hide behind that they're just not going to take a stand and that's some sort of fucking noble thing that they are just going to remain neutral. And it, I think a lot of people are just seeing through that farce now. It also, it, it's so unfair because for a lot of people, they don't have a choice here. A lot of people do not have the choice of neutrality because they're being directly impacted. And when we, when we don't do our part, we're telling them that it's your problem to deal with your fight, we're not going to get involved, but even though we are directly responsible. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really frustrating. One of the students who spoke, you know, they said that line of like, you know, stuff like this is brought up a lot. Like, you know, when you're old and if you have grandkids, like, are you going to be able to look back and tell them that, that you took a stand, that you did your part? And I, 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 I feel like I can, and I'm proud of that. Do you think that? Because I think you're a lot more like me, where it's not even a process that really goes through our brain. We don't have a choice. I feel like I don't have a choice. No. If, if I were to not... I feel guilty when we don't spend every single episode on Palestine now. You know, I feel like I'm not doing enough. I feel I would feel not well at all if I chose to remain silent on something like this. Like it, I wouldn't even be thinking of what future generations would think with me because I would not be able to sleep. I promise you 
not even with the best medication I've got here, would I be able to sleep if I were just to start tweeting only about domestic matters now or going back to simply sharing photos of my pets, which I do. But I mean, like, how do you go back to business as usual? How do you even make that choice? I, I I think there's like two kinds of people in the world, right? Like people who can sit and make that choice and people who's just it's not a choice it's not and and that's the thing is that like it it isn't a choice and it's a part of who i am and i've been told sometimes that maybe i have unreasonably high expectations of people but the reason i say this is because like approaching it from like the very like common experience i guess because our experience is not the common experience right like i feel like i just i get i'm frustrated because like like I get that not everyone can, I get that not everyone can be us and and do and like not everyone's perfect. Not everyone. <laughs> and it, it, but what I mean is like it, like it sucks too. You know, like I. You're talking about people I like walk, in precarious jobs or situations where they're forced no, to stay I quiet. Mean, I mean, no, I mean just in general, like like you wonder like how we become despoliticized. What is it like? How do we? Where do we find this drive? And I know it doesn't just happen you know and i know it's not a universal experience but i feel like for the for for the average person there's more that can be done you know that and that that's kind of just where i'm at i feel like there's more that can be done that should be done and that like we're getting to a point where people who know what's happening who know it's a genocide are sitting there and like well yeah this is a genocide and maybe i'll 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 mention it in passing but i'm not gonna go any step further than that and it's like okay what well, we need more we need more but i think this is different because and i know it's kind of lame to use this as an example but it is an example the petition that went to the house of commons like folks these petitions they do something but not a lot but the point is it had the most amount of people sign it than it had ever signed one of these house of commons petitions so then that's always like the first step for organizers right get you to sign a petition get you to fill out a survey something sometimes it's just data mining but it it in the person who's signing it that's the first petition you've ever signed that was your first step into activism that that was you kind of doing something you didn't normally do that you thought you were kind of powerless finding that you know, you do have implementations there to pressure government rather than just the ballot box. So although they don't achieve a lot, I think when we look at how many people they did convince to sign this, even with the language that it had, that is so seemingly controversial, even to liberals, is astonishing. And I think the numbers that go went to Ottawa uh, on the National Days of Action, continually, right, that are showing up in the streets. These are not average numbers. These are not even numbers that showed up when our planet is burning, you know, when huge issues that impact us directly, you know, that you can tangibly, like saving our healthcare. all of these things have never mobilized people in the way that they have now. And that's not just the work of activists, which is crucial, but it's like it's hitting them. And I think it's from these... The ability to share these stories and take knowledge. I'm going to. So it's proof like like just telling some of these stories and sharing some of these facts with people that wouldn't normally be exposed to them is so important. So my mom, I go I go outside and she's there and she asked me like one simple 
question about the conflict and it opens up this greater conversation and me being me, I probably sat there and went off for like seven, eight minutes of whatever had happened that week, whatever horrific stories I could share without traumatizing her, right? Because I know if I go too far, she'll, she'll tune out. And you know what she turned to me and said? Well, I wouldn't be giving back any fucking hostages either. And <laughs> that's quite the step for her. I But she was able to put herself for a moment in the shoes of a Palestinian and the extremes in which she would respond to that kind of violence and oppression that she just wasn't aware of. Like, she just wasn't aware of the extent and the attitudes that underpin them. And when that was, you know, explained to her, resistance became the only option. Yeah, and and that's the thing. I I think that for a lot of people who aren't typically um, involved, there's been a lot of good stuff. I think what I'm annoyed at is more along the lines of like the people who I, I guess I was annoyed that there would be someone annoyed at being asked to not be neutral. You know what I mean? And I, I think a lot of people are like are, are are doing more than is typical. And that's great. But I think that if, for somebody to get get annoyed at being asked to not be neutral is to possess the knowledge that there is more that they could be doing. Like almost and like they have an inherent right to be neutral and you, that you're infringing on. Or more that uh, like I think it's that they know that they could be doing more. You're I think triggering that they guilt. Know what's happening? Yeah, I think there's guilt, and don't come at me with your guilt. If you feel guilty, do more. Don't come at me with your guilt. You know, and I guess I was just a little bit annoyed at that because it's like, you know, you think you think I have the time and energy here. Like I'm constantly burnt out. I right. I can't afford groceries. I should be putting this time towards being able to afford groceries. I should be putting this time to being able to afford rent. You know, I have consequences. I'm never going to, like, I'm studying in something where I've already pre-blacklisted, preemptively blacklisted myself, where I'm never going to work for any major publication. I don't fucking want to anyways, you know. But there's no, like, I'm, like I, I, I put my career at risk. I've, like, I've done sacrifices. I'm committed to this. And so the idea that somebody who isn't, doing like i'm not asking you to be me but i'm asking you to do something i'm asking you to do to to contribute something because it's exhausted and i'm exhausted you know i'm i'm i I, I, i'm tired of i don't know i'm just i'm tired because i don't see things changing enough i don't think i'm just tired because the bombs are still dropping i'm tired because people are still dying and it's not the time to say enough has been done I have reached my personal limit because I, I like I think that there's people who can say that but I think that a lot of people can't and you know like don't ever fucking say oh like I would like what happened to the like you know first they came for attitude you know what happened to the we need to like be ever cautious about the rise of fascism you know, like, how are we letting that happen? I just, you, you know what it is, is that I see our society, I see Canadian society slipping so quickly towards theocratic fascism right now. Really slip, like, and I don't mean that in a, like, I mean that as somebody who knows what the fuck that means. 
Like, I'm not saying that to fear monger. I'm not saying that w- out of historical ignorance. I'm saying that out of knowledge, out of knowledge of, of, of the path that happens. You know, we're seeing theocratic fascism grow into a powerful force. Right now is not the time to, to, to take it easy. Like, it's the time to fight it as hard as we fucking can because you know what? Every day you don't, it's going to become harder. Every day we let it grow harder more, it's going to become more difficult down the line. And you know what that means? You know what that means is that people like me and Jessa have to make that many more sacrifices. The people, we don't have a choice. It's not in us to have a choice. We have to do this. So the consequences, we're going to feel the consequences of that. And I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'm happy to do it, but don't let me do it in vain, at least, is where I'm at. You know, I don't know. Not all of this is, uh, this is, this rant is an emotional one and it's not all, I didn't intend on it. But I'm just, I'm frustrated because there needs to be a point to this. There needs to be a fucking point to this. I, 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 because I can't look. I can't like I can't let that happen. And I don't I'm not strong enough. I'm just one person. I'm not strong enough to make that much of a difference. It takes more of us. I just don't want to see it happen, you know. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.